0: Hope everybody is feeling good and enjoying the time that we're spending together in worship today. I um, appreciate uh, the thoughts that Sean uh, shared, specifically talking about his uh, 10th wedding anniversary. If you've been paying attention to Facebook, they've just been pathetic this week. Uh, Went on vacation as a family, and every day there was this new picture, you know, here we are, look how much we love each other, look how cute we are, and... Look at our kids and look here we are in our white and no, I don't think they did the white picture on the beach. I don't think they did that. But you guys did look great. Congratulations. Do you know that if you are, if you're married you've got a 70% chance making it 10 years. Do you know that? 70% of our marriages in the United States make it 10 years. Now here's the interesting thing. You got a 50-50 shot making it 20. It's true. You have a better chance to last 10 years than you do 20. You think, man, if we can just get past 10 years, I mean, that should, that should really be, be the, just the nail in the coffin in our relationship, right? In a good way. I mean, that should really make it where, hey, if we can get through 10 years, we can get through anything. And yet, it is harder to get between 10 and 20 than it is to get between 1 and 10. Kind of Crazy. It's been harder than normal for some of you to sit through these lessons the last few weeks. It's hard because we've been talking about marriage and we've been talking about God's, God's view of marriage. And I know it's been hard for you because you told me. You told me about the uncomfortable feelings, the uneasiness. The minutes of uncomfortable silence as you drive home. You see, when your marriage is barely hanging on, to hear somebody talk about God's great plan for marriage and to hear people talk about 10 years, and it's hard to sit there and keep your emotions in check. And if you're a person whose marriage didn't make it 10 years or didn't make it 20 or, or didn't make it 30 or whatever the number might be, Sometimes it's doubly hard to sit and put a smile on and to act like everything's okay. And I know that today's subject is going to add to your uncomfortableness. You walked in this morning and you got your glory, praise, and honor and you looked down and you saw the different songs that we were going to be singing and you were feeling with with joy and then it gets to that part where it says lesson and it says suburban legends, divorce. And you got a knot in your stomach. And it's still there. And so, here's what I want to do. I just want to stop for a minute and I just want us to pray just want to pray. Pray that God's spirit will fight through the emotions that we have and win. Fight through the uneasiness, fight through the uncomfortableness so that God might be able to speak into our hearts no matter where we are on the spectrum. Speak into our hearts a message that we so need to hear. And so if you're celebrating number 10 or fighting to make it to 20, you know what it feels like to sign on the dotted line join me in prayer because god is present in every single relationship father we thank you for watching over us we thank you for caring so much about us and maybe no other subject brings so much emotion in the ones that we've been talking about these last few weeks when we talk about our families, when we talk about our marriages and our relationships, because there's there's so much love, there's so much hate, there's so much passion, and it all just begins to well up. And there are some times where we just wish we could go to church and not have to think about a marriage. We wish we could just go somewhere and things just just build us up and make us feel good and not. Now remind us of some of the difficulties we're facing. Father, you know the needs of every single person in this room. You know the needs of those who are watching online right now. And you understand that even if we celebrate 10 years, that it's still hard. And you know that even if we have not been able to have what maybe some would consider a successful marriage, You know that we're not failures. You have seen us in our best moments, and Father, you have seen us in our worst. And as we've already been reminded during our communion time, you still reconcile us. And you love us, and you care for us. And so I ask right now that you put your spirit in comfort mode, so to speak, in peace mode. So that those who are here, all of us, whether we be single, whether we be married, whether everything is going well, or whether we are struggling, that we will feel your presence and that we will be able to listen to the things that you long for us to hear this morning. So that we might be stronger this afternoon. So that we might be more whole. So that we might be more at peace. So that we might be able to forgive so that we might be able to move on and live again Father hear the needs of these people today and come quickly in the name of Jesus we pray Amen so here's kind of how it goes we talked last week about the fact that there's a myth that goes around that says well um, just happens to everybody marriages just fall apart that's just kind of what happens and we try to focus in and say that's not how it was from the beginning and God has a a different plan but here's how it goes oftentimes in our marriages and in our relationships we kind of just fall trapped to getting caught into a cycle and it it plays itself out visually and it plays itself out emotionally and in one of a few ways one of them is just this idea that we're going to fake it till we make it and that just means we'll pretend. We'll put on a pretty good face. Do you guys ever watch this movie? Do you watch The Notebook? Remember that movie? And, and, and you remember the guy and the gal in, in that movie and how they, they loved each other and, and how they, they just fought all the time and, but yet something was just holding them together and, and you see them dancing in the street and everything is all great, right? Remember that? Do you know that the two actors that played the lead characters there couldn't stand each other during the filming of that movie? Yeah. I mean, The Notebook, the movie that maybe you and your spouse thought, oh, this is just perfect. This is our relationship and and this is who we are. And and you went out and rented a rowboat and you rowed her through the the, the birds. I mean, (laughs) these guys couldn't stand each other. Maybe The Notebook wasn't your movie. Maybe you were more of a dirty dancing kind of gal or guy. And you went up to your significant other and said, nobody puts baby in a corner. You know what? They hated each other too. They did. They fought all the time on set. They they, they wouldn't even come out of the trailers and be in each other's presence until it was time to shoot a scene. And yet we watch that, and it's like, oh, I want to be Johnny, and I want to be baby, and you know, I want you to pick me up like that. And some of you guys still have back issues because, I mean, you tried. <laughs> I mean, you, 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 you tried, and it wasn't her fault, it was yours. Oh, maybe it's not that couple. Maybe, anybody remember I Love Lucy? Remember that? Now, do you guys know that, that Lucy and Desi had issues, right? Everybody, everybody knows that. Do you know that Fred and Ethel didn't like each other either? They didn't. They didn't, they couldn't stand each other. They didn't like the fact that they were paired together and had to be this, this couple. And they just argued all the time. and, and, And there was this resentment and there was anger and there was accusation and there was sarcasm. And for many of you, that's your marriage. It's your marriage because you fake it. Till you make it. You sit together at church. You sit together at soccer games. You go to concerts together. And on the outside, others look at you and oftentimes say, you know, I wish that I could have what they have. But in a private moment, you'd say, no you don't. (laughs) No you don't. Or maybe you just say, we'll stay together for the kids. You know this thought? We'll live as roommates and as business partners, and we're going to tough it out a few more years. And, And then when the kids go off to school and leave home, we'll leave home too. We just resign ourselves to a life that the French call ennui. And ennui means boredom. Just boredom. You exist, you're in the same house, but you resign yourself to an uncomfortable state. You say, well, it's better than fighting all the time and it's better than, than the arguing because that's what it used to always be. So this has got to be at least a little bit better. And we'll just hang on and we'll just wait and we'll put tough it out for the kids because we want them to have a, a happy childhood. The term was described to a woman in the Bahamas and she remarked out that there wasn't, there wasn't a term in the bohemian language for ennui. And then she said... And she concluded it was like the bohemian word for treading water. Anybody feel like that in your marriage? That all the effort is just being used to keep above water so you don't drown? Or maybe, maybe you played the waiting game. It's the home version of Survivor where you just hold out and you hope that your spouse will do something that will bring an end to the relationship. You hope and pray that your partner will do something that will just force an end to the marriage. Does it shock you to find out that I know of husbands and wives who are actually relieved when they found out that their spouse cheated? I can get out of this now. I can be the innocent one. You see, we all want to be seen as the good spouse. And so we wait. Or maybe... Maybe you have bought into the suburban legend that says divorce is better than being unhappy. Now, as soon as I say that word, immediately you're already aware that you feel something. You have an opinion on this topic. Some of you have parents who divorced and you're still dealing with that. Others of you may have been divorced yourself and you're, you're nervously sitting there again wondering how can you seem to remain interested when keeping all of your emotions in check. Some of you hold to the view that no one should ever divorce, that divorce just isn't an option. And then there's this growing call in our culture that just says, listen, if you're unhappy and if you don't feel like you're getting along and if things aren't going the way that you like it to, then the best thing that you can do is just get a divorce, So, why do we need to talk about this if it brings up so much emotion? Why should we discuss such a sensitive issue? Do you know that George Gallup found that 70% of people in the United States believe that divorce is not a moral issue? Here's how they say it. Divorce is morally acceptable, yes or no. And 70% say yes. Yeah. If things don't go the way I want them to, let's just divorce. That's up 11%, by the way, in the last 10 years. There is this trend that keeps going that says in every cul-de-sac and on every corner, listen, marriages, you can't hope that they're going to hold out. Everybody's going to have problems. And when it goes south, you can always get a divorce. Regardless of where you fall on this issue, I just want to ask you to do something for the next few minutes. Will you just listen? Don't get defensive try not to become upset. Don't internalize every single statement that's made. I'm just going to ask that you listen with an open mind and an open heart as we endeavor to learn what the Bible has to say about this particular issue. And please understand that we do not have enough time to give full in-depth study to this particular idea. Today, we're just going to focus on a few biblical texts as we discover what it means when when we truly say, I do. And God says, I don't want you to ever say, I don't. Last week, we started looking at the beginning. Remember? We said how that Jesus in the Gospels had an occasion where people came to him and said, listen, what do you think, Jesus? What is the reason for a man divorcing his his wife? And remember that we looked and saw where Jesus said, and from the beginning, it was not so. And he goes back to Genesis and we looked at verse 20 through 25, and he says, But for Adam there was, no super, there was no suitable helper found. So, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs from his flesh, and then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, remember the poetry, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and you will be called woman because you were taken from man then you continue reading and you find out it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave, be united with his wife, and the two will be one flesh. Jesus says, from the beginning, there was not this question of, can I divorce? When should I divorce? Is it okay to divorce? It wasn't there. That's how, that's how it started. But you fast forward to the time of Jesus. And by that time, divorce was as common in that culture as it actually is today. And just like today, God's people were wondering exactly what do we do? What is acceptable and what is not? And so Jesus was asked to participate in a theological tango that we oftentimes read about in Matthew chapter 19. And this is where people were wondering, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife just for any reason? Now to understand the context of Jesus' response, you need to understand the context of the Old Testament passage that was being addressed when Jesus was asked the question by the Pharisees. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 4, Moses, as Israel's lawgiver, granted permission to God's people to divorce if the husband found, quote, something objectionable about his wife. And for a century, the understandings of what it meant for something to be objectionable, it fell into two different theological camps. One theological camp looked at the enactment of the Deuteronomy divorce permission And said that it could take place for a variety of any female offenses, ranging from flirting with men in public to burning the biscuits of the husband. And this lax view of divorce, understand, this lax view where you could divorce your wife for any reason that you found objectionable, this was the dominant view during the time of Jesus. And it was common for men to divorce their wives for any cause. We would say today, we just have irreconcilable differences. We just can't get along. We don't like the same things. He likes to go hiking, I like to go to the mall. We don't like it when we can't do things together. We argue all the time. He's always watching football, she's always going to yoga, whatever it might be. Irreconcilable differences. Now the second theological view argued that divorce should be pursued only in the cases of sexual misconduct by a man's wife. Now this was the minority view at the time. That a person who divorced for trivial causes other than marital infidelity had done so in violation of God's law. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus and basically say, What is your definition of is? Well, what do you think, Jesus? How do you read Moses' words in Deuteronomy? What is your idea, teacher? Can a man divorce his wife just for any reason, or is there, is there more? And so Jesus, as we looked and talked about last week, goes back to the very beginning and he says, it wasn't this way. There wasn't questions about divorce. Marriage was intended to be one man and one woman for for one lifetime. He then states in verse 8 that the dissolution of the marriage covenant was never in God's original plan, but was allowed due to the hardness of the hearts of the people. And because of the behaviors of the certain men. Divorce was never a part of God's plan. And so I think what we need to stop with right here, we need to stop just a minute and say, why is God so anti-divorce? I mean, why does it bother God so much? Because our culture says that getting a divorce is better than being unhappy. And in fact, I've heard people use God to justify this belief and say, well, God wants me to be happy. God wouldn't want me to stay in a relationship like this. And it sounds good. A God who solely exists for my happiness. A God who endorses any action or choice as long as it just makes me feel good. But here's the rub. God is more concerned about my holiness than my comfort. And seeking his endorsement of an act that was never a part of his original intent, it might soothe your conscience. But it does not change the truth of Malachi 3 and verse 8 that God hates divorce. And so if that's been where you are, if that's that's where you currently sit and you look and say, well I know that God wants me to be happy and that God would want me to get a divorce in order for me to find comfort and peace and happiness, it's a suburban legend. It's not true. It's not biblical. Here's why divorce is something that God just cannot stomach. It always is more destructive than you think. Regardless of who is more at fault, the divorce always causes multiple levels of damage. Listen to the words of a man who experienced this firsthand. He says, divorce itself, it is an arena of pain that few are prepared for. The damage to the married couple, the children, and the friends and family is simply devastating. They think they'll be in a better position in their lives and be happier, especially when they're the party that's pushing it. The thinking is tragically mistaken. What is waiting for you is a whirlwind tour of pain and anger, embarrassment, social awkwardness, scheduling difficulties, loneliness, guilt, financial hardship, and generally just just a much more complicated life. You can't imagine how many little things will show up to remind you of your failed marriage and the situation you are now in. We are walking wounded that never completely heal. See, divorce encompasses so many different areas of our lives. It impacts couples in physical ways. Never share that sexual intimacy with one another. It devastates individuals financially. You lose money in child support, lawyers, fees, dividing up all the different assets. In the short term, it's usually more difficult for the man. In the long term, it's normally more difficult for the woman. Everything changes overnight. And while you won't miss some of the individuals that maybe were a part of your social sphere, those relationships are different and change and there's an awkwardness that comes into play. And here's another area of significance, and those of you who have already gone through this, you know this to be the case. Man, divorce hurts your kids. I truly believe that part of what motivates God's hatred for divorce is that He just knows how difficult it is for the children. We know by every possible cultural measurement that divorce is harmful. Now don't misunderstand me, it's not that kids can't grow up and be godly individuals in divorced households. Many of you who are here this morning prove that otherwise. But it is a much tougher path. Kids from divorced homes on average don't do as well in school. They're more likely to have health problems, more likely to divorce when they get married as adults, more likely to suffer abuse, and it just goes on and on. And yet, when a couple is thinking about and contemplating divorce, they usually don't think about the long-term implications. Instead, they just wonder, how do we get out of this mess? How do we just stop the pain? John R. W. Stott once said, divorce was a divine concession to a human weakness. Divorce was allowable, Jesus said, in the case of marital unfaithfulness, because the marriage covenant had been broken. But this was was a concession. It wasn't a command. Jesus was asked a question, how do you see Deuteronomy 24? Can can individuals divorce for any reason? He says, listen, from the beginning, it was not so. This is not the plan that God had. It was one man, one woman for one lifetime. But you want to know, what was Moses talking about in Deuteronomy 24? It's that you can have a divorce if there is unfaithfulness in the relationship. He says, that's the answer. And by the way, did you know that this time women could not initiate divorce? Divorce was only something that could be done by a male. And as you continue to read in Deuteronomy 24, what you find out that the provision given by Moses was actually a protection that was given to the women of that particular time because what was taking place was that men would just go and and let this wife go and come get another and all of a sudden this wife is then gone and perhaps she's remarried again and then he can come back and claim her again as his own. You read through Deuteronomy 24 and you find out that's not the plan that God had. Now, it's important to note that the Apostle Paul gives a second reason that divorce may be a consideration. And that is abandonment. What was an individual to do if he or she decided to become a Christian? And then the spouse said, you know what? This is not, this is not the relationship that, that I wanted. This is, not, this is not what I wanted to have take place. There was obviously the possibility that a non-Christian mate would not consent to stay married to a husband or wife who chose that their first allegiance was going to be Jesus Christ. So, what was going to happen then? 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15 tells us, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live at peace. You continue to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Paul gives a common-sense approach to divorce among believers in a fallen world. He says in verses 2, 10, and 27, do everything reasonably possible to avoid divorce. Run from it, don't consider it, don't let it be in your vocabulary. If you do choose to divorce your mate, then stay single, he talks about in verses 8 and also at the end of verse 27, stay single for a time in the hope of working out your problem and reconciling that relationship. It says though in verse 9 that if you face temptation, that if you face temptation of being aflame with passion, as it he then you should consider marriage. And in verse 28 at the beginning, it says if you do choose to marry again, you have not sinned by doing so. Now understand, to divorce under any other circumstances, whether it be for what I call the trivial reasons that we just don't get along anymore, we're just not compatible, or for very serious things but not infidelity such as alcoholism or abuse, while no doubt it protects you and it relieves you from the current situation, it is missing the mark that God had set out for marriage. And the idea of missing the mark, what we call it in religious settings, is sin. The specific name of the sin committed in such cases is adultery, because you have broken the covenant. You have broken what God said no man should put asunder. let me remind you that no sin is beyond the reach of God's grace. Any sin repented of and offered to God for pardon will be forgiven. Greed, idolatry, theft, drunkenness, sodomy, fornication, all may be forgiven. And adultery, that covenant breaking, is neither a greater sin than these, nor is it beyond God's power to heal and forgive. Listen to Paul writing again to the Corinthian church. He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He said these type of actions... This type of lifestyle is not compatible with Christian discipleship. It's not what you find in God's kingdom. But he says there in chapter 6, and that is what some of you were. You were this way, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Remember, when he writes again to the Corinthians, he'll say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. When an individual comes expressing remorse over whatever he or she did, contributing to the breakup of that marriage, forgiveness is the divine response to the penitent heart. However, repentance does not enable someone to unscramble all the eggs and undo harm that's already done. But it accepts responsibility. It confesses sin. It accepts forgiveness and pledges to seek God's help, never to commit the same transgression in the future. In the case of someone who remarries following a divorce, the Bible typically uses the terms divorce and divorce and remarriage as equivalent because the presumption is that the remarriage will follow a divorce. And as I mentioned there in Deuteronomy 8, that was in fact the expectation. And I don't think there's necessarily any more grace in the Old Testament than is found under the new covenant of God. The duty of repentance from adultery is to try to understand how one's behavior led to the breakup of the marriage initially. You need to be able to seek help to correct those out-of-control areas in your heart and in your life, and you devote yourself to your new life and to that new relationship perhaps and to God if that relationship comes about. See, God's plan is that there be one man and one woman for one lifetime. And if you have experienced the pain of divorce and you can't go back and reconcile that relationship, then make it a, part that if, or make it a point that if God leads you to marry again, it is until death do you part. And so you listen to that. And you say, but Chris, doesn't that only encourage couples to dissolve their marriage when things get tough? By talking about forgiveness from adultery, by talking about forgiveness from divorce, doesn't that just encourage couples just to to throw things away? I'm not naive. I don't... I don't deny that oftentimes there are individuals who are looking for loopholes, who are looking for ways to get out of a marriage, looking for a way to throw away something that God has said is sacred. But let me ask you, do we not face the same possibility with any number of human behaviors? Should we not teach that God forgives lying lest we fear that somebody go and lie more? Should we not teach that God forgives drunkenness lest someone go out on a bender on Saturday night. Should we not teach that God forgives any number of our behaviors? Believing somehow that if we teach forgiveness on these subjects that it will just encourage people to go and participate in more sin. See I don't believe that you discourage sin by withholding the gospel's message of forgiveness. Instead, I think what ends up happening is we do just the opposite. If we give individuals no hope, if we tell them, there is no future for you with God, if we tell them there is nothing left, then why should there be a disciple? Why should they keep any commandments? Why should they try to remain faithful in any relationship? Why should they ever try to worship? Because they made a, the mistake of all mistakes. And because they made that, there is no forgiveness and there is no hope. You don't discourage sin by withholding forgiveness, you encourage it. In offering God's message of genuine forgiveness to sinners, no matter the nature of the sin, we don't invite people to go out and sin. We simply offer a message of faith, hope, and love, and we say that Jesus' blood covers all iniquities. You know, if doctors were trying to save a dying patient, they might, they might beat on his chest or cut him open, pump, pump some drugs into him. And it's amazing the thousands of dollars that we spend whenever there's a cancer diagnosis that comes into our home. And I think we need to get just as radical with our marriages. Guys, you need to ask friends to pray for your marriage. Maybe you need to find a marriage mentoring couple. You need to pursue counseling. Maybe you need to actually talk with each other. That's a radical thought. I mean, if, if doctors went and tried to save patients with the same intensity that we try to save our marriage relationships, they would constantly be being sued for malpractice. We're like, things get difficult. Oh, well. It's better to divorce than be happy. See, the church has to be different than the world. Perhaps your spouse was unfaithful to you. And even though, baby, as you read through Scripture, you see that there is permission to divorce your mate, it may not be the best thing for you to do. In the Old Testament book of Hosea, we read about God's prophet and how he was told by God to go and, and to marry this woman named Gomer. Now, he should have known something was up when that happened. He said, go marry Gomer. Gomer was a prostitute and they're married and then Gomer leaves the relationship, goes back into her old lifestyle and God comes to his prophet again and says, you go find her and I want you to marry her again. Go pursue her and reunite, reunite yourself with her. And it was the picture of the divine groom's faithfulness and his love for his bride. You read through Ephesians chapter five, it tells us marriage is supposed to be an illustration of God's commitment to his people. He is the one who is the great physician. He is the one who is the healer. And I just want to encourage you don't give up too quickly. You're sitting here this morning and you're saying the fairy tale has ended. And Chris, you don't know how difficult it's been just to sit and listen to the things that have gone on because there's a knot in my stomach. Don't give up too quickly. You say, but we've been praying and nothing's happened. Keep praying. We've been to counseling and nothing's working. Go back again. We've sat down and we've talked about it. And just we can't come to a conclusion. Go back and talk some more. But perhaps reconciliation is impossible. You're divorced. You've moved on. Maybe you're engaged in another relationship. Maybe you sit here this morning, you can't imagine yourself with anybody else. Maybe you sit here this morning and you say, it wasn't my fault. Oh, I know there were some things I did and there's some things that, sure, I can take the blame for, but I wasn't the one that walked out. Let me close with a radical idea from Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus highlights what living under the kingdom rule of God looks like. And he offers to us a choice. It's not something that has to take place. It's something that God's disciples choose. It's a choice between the rule of the world and the rule of God. And for those who choose the rule of God, here's what he says. Matthew 5 and verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do you love somebody that's told you that they don't love you? Now, I can't tell you to have the warm and affectionate feelings for your ex. I might as well just ask you to stop breathing. But there is a point where choice takes over, and here's what I think Jesus is saying you change the conversation, you pray for them, you greet them the way you would others that are still family. He says, when you're generous towards people who are family or friends or generous to people that do good things for you, he said, what benefit is that? He said, even pagans that don't even believe in God do that. See, it's when we treat outsiders the same way that we treat insiders, that's when the kingdom rule of God is on display in our life. When we're going to see them as us and when we're going to pray for them the way that we pray for us and we're going to ask God's blessing on them like we ask God's blessing on us. And when, we're, when they're in our midst and we have the opportunity, we're going to treat them the way that we wish they would have treated us in the way that we desire still to be treated. Your marriage might not have been the fairy tale that you wanted it to be. It might not have been the notebook story. But your relationship going forward can demonstrate that you do live in an amazing kingdom ruled by an amazing king. And so last week I asked couples, I said, I said, why don't you come on down and let's pray. I said, let's, let's get rid of some of the stigma that comes into what some groups call the altar call or it's the invitation. The lesson ends and we say, y'all come. And it's become that time that if some sin has ended up on the internet or if it's ended up in the front page of the paper, then we'll come forward. Otherwise, we just, we won't make that walk. So it's even turned with the walk of shame. Can you believe that? That God says, come to me, Hall, you are weary and burdened and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And we've turned that somehow into, I wonder what he did. I wonder what she said. I better go and see if anything's in the paper. And so we asked families last week, we said, why don't you just come down as couples? just come on down and and just line up around here. And we said, we're just going to pray for our families and we're just going to pray. And I had one individual who reached out this this week who said, I can't believe that I was the only divorced person that came and and stood with the married couples saying, 'I, I, I want God's blessing. And so here's what we're gonna do again this week. Maybe you didn't come last week because of whatever reason. You just don't do that kind of thing, or maybe your wife was like, "Come on, we need to go and have prayer." And you're like, "I oh, don't. No, 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 that's not what I do." Or, or, or maybe maybe you were here last week and you were just by yourself. Your spouse wasn't here, and you were like, "It'll just be kind of weird if I walk down there without my without my spouse." Or, and maybe you're saying, "You know what? I I am I am divorced." We're going to sing a song together, and I want to invite you again: couples, singles divorced, your fault, somebody else's fault. Maybe you do need to come and repent of sin and you need to come because it is because of your actions that the marriage ended and you are guilty of adultery. Maybe you need to come because you say, I am broken and I don't know what to do on my own. And you just need somebody to hug you. Maybe you want to come again because, like I said, you're a couple, you're a family. You say, hey, we just want want God to pray for us. We just want God's prayer for us in our lives. We want to come here together. And we're not going to necessarily go through if— if you guys just start coming like you did last week, you might notice we didn't go through and talk to every single individual. We got up, basically just had a prayer for, for everybody. And so if you're like, I don't, I don't really wanna share and I really don't wanna, I don't wanna get into specifics right now, I would just love to just stand beside people of God and feel God's presence in my life, then here's what we're gonna do. We're going to sing and I'm asking you with your spouse, with your family, by yourself, with your son or with your daughter, with a friend, whoever it is that's beside you, I'm asking you to come so that we might pray God's blessings and forgiveness in our life. Are you ready? He's able. Let's stand and sing.